And so if you are here this evening, then either on purpose or by accident, you've stumbled into the college and career ministry of Baylife Church. Um, and that name, college and career, is really born out of two things. One of them is my profound lack of creativity and just my inability to come up with anything cool or hip to name this ministry, and also my conviction that cool and hip names don't tend to actually be as cool and as hip as you think they are two years down the road. Uh, but, but the other reality that has sort of inspired what this ministry is called is that both college and career are these two aspects of late teens, early to mid-twenties, these two aspects of experience and existence that I hope that we as a ministry are uh, speaking into and bringing the gospel to bear on. Because the fact of the matter is that a profound number of people walk away from their faith in college. Uh, that is in part because they encounter these intellectual objections and questions that are raised that they don't feel like they can find answers to. Uh, but in another sense, that's due to the fact that many people don't find a community of believers with which they connect. And so it becomes easier to do nothing than to continue in the faith that seemed to come so naturally when they were younger. And so man, my prayer is that towards the college end of things, this is a ministry where you can come and ask questions and we can bring the gospel to bear on the life of the mind and the questions that you wrestle with because I think that, that the gospel in Scripture speaks to many of the questions that are asked uh, and discussed in an academic setting. Uh, but my other desire is that this is a community where you can find people who care about you walking with Christ. But there's this other aspect of life that kind of comes at us in our 20s. Uh, very few people in this room, I would hope, plan to be in college for forever, no matter how much that might feel like the case presently. Um, maybe it's been five years or ten years or more years than I'm going to go ahead and list, and you still haven't ended up with a degree yet. But the ultimate hope of continuing education, whether that's vocational school, community college, or university, that the goal behind doing that is not just because it's fun, uh, but because we hope to step into a career. We hope to step into the working world. And if you start working 40 hours a week in your 20s, some of you earlier than that, and you work until your 60s or 70s when you retire or expire, a significant portion of your life will be spent in your vocation, in your job. And yet, very rarely, as Christians, do we think about the way that our faith undergirds and informs our working lives. Uh, this series is a series on faith and work, but I'm not talking about works in the sense that can you earn your way to heaven. I'm talking about work in the sense of your nine to five, what you do to pay your bills, your vocation, your job. For many of us, even though we spend most of our lives working, we don't think about how Scripture and the Gospel speaks to and informs this really significant portion of, of our experience. I mean, maybe we think about how it restricts it. We know that like dealing coke or being a hitman is off the table. Um, I hope you think that. If you don't, we'll talk afterwards. Don't take communion. Um, but, but very rarely do we think about positively what our faith says and how it speaks to this central aspect of the human experience. And so here's my hope is, is that we can talk about work and vocation for these next three weeks and just begin to start a conversation about how what we believe about God and his world affects the way that we work in it. 
And so this week, here's my hope, is that we can lay this sort of foundation, beginning at the beginning of what work is, why it is that we as people work, why Scripture affords such dignity to work. Next week, I want to talk about, in large part, how work has gone wrong and how the gospel sets it right. And in in the final week, I want to talk about rest, uh, because there is this pattern that happens in Scripture where there is labor, and it's honest labor, but then we step back and we rest. And without that pattern built into our lives, then work becomes miserable, as anybody who's worked uh, 10 consecutive days without a break knows. And so we begin at the beginning. I'm going to ask you to bear with me on this, because I'm about to read a very long section of Scripture. Uh, And it's not because I plan on going verse by verse through all of it, but because I want to step back and get a sense of some of the patterns that we see played out in Genesis chapter 1. And so, I'm going to be reading Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through to 27. Hear the word of the Lord. It says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven. There was evening and there was morning the second day. And then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he called the seas. God saw that that was good. And he said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which their seed, uh, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning on the fourth day. And then God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the heavens across the expanse. And so God created the great sea creatures, every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening and there was morning on the fifth day. And then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, livestock according to their kinds. And everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over, every, over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. 
So there is a plurality of opinions on how to understand Genesis 1, dating all the way back to Augustine in the 4th century. My intention is not to dive into the many theories that are shared among people who equally value God's Word as being inspired and inerrant and true, and people who equally uh, believe that God has spoken truly and created. There's a lot of opinions, like I said. But, but rather, my hope in reading this passage and calling your attention to it here at the beginning is because there's these patterns and these rhythms that we see when we hear the text in its entirety that I think kind of lay a foundation for why work matters, why it has dignity, and what it means for us as God's people to work in the world that he's made. There's a common misunderstanding uh, that people bring to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, which is probably the most well-known sentence in the history of literature. It says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And yet most people believe that that's more of a heading than a uh, declarative statement. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the rest of this chapter is going to explain how. Uh, But the reality is that I actually think that creation takes place in verse 1. And the reason that I believe that is because after verse 1, the earth is there. And so God is not, in a sense, creating from nothing throughout the rest of Genesis chapter 1, but creation has taken place in the beginning. This is what Christians call creation ex nihilo, from nothing. But having made everything in verse 1, it is not complete. And this is what you see in verse 2. We're told that the earth is formless and void. The Hebrew here is tohu wabohu. It means wild and waste. Formless and void. And the phrase here in the Hebrew is used throughout the Old Testament not to describe something that doesn't exist, but rather something that is unfit for human habitation. It's used to describe something that is akin to a wilderness. And so what happens at the beginning of Genesis is that God creates matter from nothing. And what happens in the rest of Genesis chapter 1 is that God takes what he has made, which is unfit for people, that is wild and waste, and he begins to shape it and to cultivate and to form it into something. The Spirit hovers over the face of the waters to bring this new creation into fruitfulness and into abundance. And so we move to these days of creation, God begins to speak. And there's these patterns that are evident throughout the text that God speaks and brings fruitfulness to creation. But there's this rhythm to the first three days and the last three days that maybe you've missed. Because in the first three days, God is in essence ordering the void. He is speaking and then there is light There is the expanse of the heavens. There is the sea and the dry land. But these are really just a framework and they remain void. He is structuring this space in such a way that it can contain things. When I was younger, um, I watched this TV series that I loved with all of my heart called Gundam Wing. Maybe you grew up in the 90s and you know all about giant fighting robots from Japan. Uh, But when I was younger, I would buy these action figures uh, for this TV series and these models that you would put together. And as cool as I thought the models were, it was profoundly important to me that I displayed them in such a way that it drew attention to how sick they were. And so I would take all sorts of like blocks and things and I would make this special place in my closet to where if for some reason a friend of mine opened my closet, his eyes would be drawn to this majestic robot fighting another robot with a lightsaber. 
because framing was important. And, and it wasn't enough for me to just have these cool things, but the way that I framed these things, my hope was that it would draw attention to the coolness of the things themselves. And if, if you're an artist in here, you know that the frame within which a painting sits is profoundly important. Almost as important as the lighting which surrounds the painting. That which frames objects of beauty is significant to the way that they're perceived. And in the beginning, God creates, and then he reaches down into creation, and he begins to develop a framework for creation to inhabit. He labors in creation to frame things well. And then the next three days come. And the heavens, which he's created, he fills with the stars and the sun and the moon. He fills the sky with birds. He fills the sea with fish. He fills the land with living creatures and ultimately mankind. So there is this establishment of order to the void and then there's the filling of these things. And this ultimately, I think, leads to a profound realization because each of these things, uh, the, the sea and the fish that go in it, the land and the creatures that walk on it, the heavens and the birds that fly in it, they're meant to exist in relationship with one another. These are complementary creations which gets to the heart of the fact that ultimately creation is born out of relationship, the relationship of the Father and the Son and the Spirit with one another, and creation is itself relational. The creation that God makes as he works in the world, as he forms and he orders creation in his providence and power is meant to complement itself in the same way that man and woman as a culmination of creation are meant to complement one another. God is forming and he is ordering and there's a rhythm even here. Because God creates and then he steps back and he says, this is good. And he celebrates what he has made. And then he creates again and he, he forms creation and he steps back and he rejoices at what he's formed. And then he forms it again and he steps back and he continues to rejoice. And I mean, I can profoundly identify with this as the nerd who built Japanese giant robot models. Because when I finally finished putting together all of my Gundam action figures, I would step back and say, this is sick. And Jordan is going to see this and think it's the coolest thing in the whole world. And Jordan never saw it because he had nicer toys than me and he didn't care. But, but there was this sense of producing and then stepping back and celebrating. And then I would produce again when I had saved up enough money for the next action figure and step back and celebrate. And so you see these rhythms that are built into creation that God creates, but then he forms. He takes what he's made and he shapes it carefully. And he sets it in a way that is appealing and adorning. And then he steps back and he celebrates. And then we come to the culmination of creation. In verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. There's a long discussion about what does it mean to be in the image of God? What it, because it never actually gets into the nitty-gritty of like what the precise stamp of the image of God is. And people, I think, have all laid hold of something true. Perhaps it's our rational faculties, our ability to produce art and philosophy and music and science and technology. Or, or maybe it's our relational capacity that we can mourn and grieve with people in this profound and empathetic way. But yet I think probably the, the most significant understanding of the image of God comes from just thinking, what would the people of Israel thought when they first heard this? 
coming out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Because they had spent, as they were reading Genesis, 400 years as slaves being treated as less than human, and they had been set to the task of conducting or constructing images and monuments to the Pharaoh of Egypt to demonstrate his glory and his power and his prestige and his fame and his renown. And if anybody had asked anybody from Israel, who's in charge of Egypt? Who's in charge of this land? They would say, the, guys who's in, the guy whose image is filling it. The guy whose statue is on every single corner. The guy whose monument I've just broken my back to establish. And so image bearing, in some sense, it's about representing the character of the person who's in charge. Pharaohs are not building small, petty, unimportant monuments. They're building things that are impressive because the purpose of that image is to show you how impressive the Pharaoh is. So then imagine for the people of Israel, they hear that not just rulers, not just kings, not just those in power, but mankind is made in God's image, which means that it is their task to represent the character and nature of the one who is in fact in charge. When bearing the image of God is not just a stamp on the soul, but it's a calling. It's a vocation. It's a task that they have been charged with. You are to bear God's image to the world that he's made in the way that you steward creation. Because it's not just that they're given God's image. They're given control. They're given dominion over what God has made. I give you my image. Represent me well. I'm giving you stewardship. Take care of this as you represent me to creation. Side note, it's okay for Christians to care about the environment. You should actually care about the environment because it comes with the task of stewardship. So, as you read the narrative of Scripture, you begin to see the character of this God whose image we bear, whose job, uh, who we have been tasked with imaging. But so far in Genesis, all we know about this God is that He works and he creates, and he takes what he has created, and he forms it, and he shapes it, and he molds it into something beautiful, and then he says, it is your job to demonstrate my character to the world, which means that if we are indeed in the image of God, then we too work, and we too take creation, that which God has made, and we shape it, and we form it into things that are useful, and beautiful, and helpful, thoughtful. And so part of bearing the image of God means that we make something of the world that he's made, which is ultimately the the definition of art. It's the definition of culture. It really comes down to what you're doing in your day-to-day job is making something of the world that God has made. Whether you are shaping it into parts for an engine, whether you are shaping it into hamburger patties as a fry cook, you are making something of the world that God has made, and that is your task as an image bearer. This is why Scripture comes down so hard on people who are lazy. It's not just because it's unattractive and you'll never get a date if you're lazy. It's because you are not bearing the image of God well. Our God is a God who works. And if you do not work, you are not imaging Him forth as He ought to be. You are saying something about God with your laziness, which is untrue. I read a study today from Forbes magazine uh, that talks about the profound psychological damage that is done to people who spend long periods of time out of work. How it destroys their confidence. 
how it sends them into tailspins of depression. It is profoundly destructive for people to be out of work in part because that is what God has charged us with. Bear my image, me, the God who works and shapes and forms. And when we can't do that, it causes stress. It causes duress. And if you've been out of work for any length of time, you know this. There's a loss of dignity that comes with the inability to work because you bear God's image and our God is a God who works. Maybe you've seen um, the, the movie Wally before, which is a profoundly interesting movie to me. I didn't expect to like it, but I actually love Wally, and I don't like Disney movies normally. And I'm going to ruin it a little bit for you, but um, there's a scene where you sort of find out what, what is going on that has left Wally on Earth, which is that humanity ruined the Earth, and they sent some robots to clean it up, and they went up into their spaceship to wait for Earth to get clean. Uh, but humanity has this self-serving spaceship that feeds them and washes them and does everything they need for them so they don't have to work. And so ultimately, everybody in the spaceship, without having to work or do anything, looks like a giant baby. Like they're all super overweight and they're just slurping on soda. And it's meant to be comical, but it's also meant to be sort of repulsive and sad. And it lays hold of this thing that I think is true, that when we step outside of what it means to bear God's image, which is to be a people who work and who labor and who shape creation in the way that God has shaped it, we become something less than human. We slowly sort of degrade. The image of God becomes obscured in us because part of the image of God is that we work in the world that God has made. So then, our work has dignity. Your occupation, your vocation, it has value, not just as a means of acquiring a paycheck, but as mechanics and gardeners and architects and artists and engineers and beer brewers and teachers and scientists and biologists and chemists and fry cooks. We are, in all, we are all, in some sense, taking the created world and fashioning it and shaping it and filling the spaces. And in so doing, you are bearing the image of God. So then is it any wonder that when God becomes man, he takes up the job of being a carpenter? And he lays his hands to the world which he has made and he shapes it and forms it anew. Yet we have not really said all there is to say about work. Genesis has more to say about work because you know that as the story goes on, Creation and work is shattered. As Adam is deceived by Satan, God pronounces these curses, first against Satan, then against Eve, then against Adam. And the curse against Adam is telling. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 18, he says this, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it. Eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. To dust you shall return. If you just graduated from college and you're super excited about this new job that you've got lined up, give it two weeks. And it becomes frustrating. And that's not because there's anything wrong with the job inherently. But anybody who's worked for more than the week-long honeymoon of work realizes uh, that work is frustrating. You realize the truthfulness of this curse that is pronounced at the fracturing of all things, that work becomes frustrating, it becomes futile. 
Uh, Sometimes you literally work yourself into the ground. Uh, Your work can break you down in a way that is profoundly unsettling. It remains in some sense good. There's, there's potential for incredible uh, fut- uh, frust- or not frustration, but rather incredible joy and uh, life-giving power that we can celebrate work, but now work is also prone to futility and frustration as the ground yields thorns and work becomes toilsome. Tom Nelson, in his book on faith and work, describes it really well. He says, much more is going on here in Genesis 3 besides work's thorny challenges. As we read this account, we can almost feel the intensity of hurricane-force winds rearranging the entire landscape of human existence. And we can sense the intense groaning of creation, the weariness that is now a part of our work. Work has become a heavy yoke that human beings were not originally designed to bear. Work shifts from being something of profound and significant beauty to being something that can lead us to profound frustration and futility. It also becomes something with a tremendous capacity for evil because the same material that you can use to form and to shape things which are beautiful like statues and sculptures, you can melt down into a spear to pierce the side of Christ. The same beams that Christ used to form tables and homes as a carpenter, those are the very beams that are bound together as His cross. In our own day, we can fashion wells for cleaning drink, clean drinking water or warheads to annihilate populations. The internet can be this tremendous tool for the sharing of information or it can be where husbands go to cheat on their wives. Our work is subjected to this futility. Now we can take the created world and work to fashion it into objects of rebellion against the creator just as easily as objects of praise. And so by the end of Genesis 3, we find ourselves here that work has this tremendous potential for good. That taking God's good world and shaping it has the potential to produce something profoundly beautiful. But like everything else after Eden, work has become sick and fallen. And like everything that stands in Adam's shadow, it must be redeemed. And so we turn to next week how the gospel takes our work and redeems it and sets it right again.